And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shrine and Gary K. Wolf with Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy Award winning author Michael Swanwick on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're off once again. Thank you for joining us, Michael. You've, Michael, you've never been on the podcast before? I never have. That's, I, that's an unfortunate oversight, which we owe you an apology for. Uh, but... <laughs> But now, now we have an excuse. We have a new novel coming out, Chase the, Chasing the Phoenix, which um, is enormously entertaining. I'll have to say that up front. Um, but, um, and it's out within, what, two or three weeks of now, isn't it? It comes out on August 11th. In all good books from okay. all good bookstores and other outlets. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. we're having a, a, a launch party at Main Point Books in Bryn Mawr. Wonderful. So... And- I guess the obvious, Gary. Go ahead, Jonathan. No, you go. Just say, I guess, Michael. The question I want to ask you is: You've been writing stories about Dagger and Surplus since two thousand one. What got you started? Where did where did they where did you find them? Um, I had just read uh, uh, Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pynchon, and has really quite a marvelous scene in there with a talking dog. And I said, I want to write a story with a talking dog. <laughs> and rather than make it an imitation of Pinchon's dog, who is really quite charming, uh, I, I just created my own. I, I described a dog st- standing on the docks of a future London, and he was standing on his hind legs. He was an anthropomorphic form. He was very well dressed. He had lace at his, co- at his uh, wrists and collars. And, and because I needed somebody to talk, to him, I had Darger, the nondescript man, comes up and says that he has a proposition for him, and they retire to a tavern, and at that point, they just grabbed the story and ran off with it. <laughs> uh, it just went ch- I was chasing after them the entirety of the story. They were always like one jump ahead of me, and I was, and I was you know, chasing along behind, going, wait up for me, guys, wait up for me. Uh, <laughs> And, and you, you uh, Dar- First of all, Darger, we've talked about this before. The name has to come from Henry Darger, doesn't it? It does. And, and it could be Henry Darger. Nobody actually knows uh, what his, uh, how his name was pronounced. He was, he was that much of a recluse. Yeah, we should explain this for people who are not heavily into outsider art, that he was a Chicago artist who lived not more than two miles from where I am right now in the DePaul neighborhood, who worked as a janitor in a, in a, a hospital for his entire life, and after he died, this massive 18,000-page novel um, with equally massive illustrations was discovered. And it's, uh, the, the thing is, as far as I know, I've got a couple of books on Darger. As far as I know, no one has actually read the entire thing. Um, <laughs> but the paintings read, are astonishing. I, I read part of it. Uh, at the, um, there's an outsider art museum in New York, and they had a celebration of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of his uh, a lot of his drawings, and uh, I was one of I don't know fifteen or so people who got to read sections from uh, from really? the the massive opus, and in fact I had to wear white gloves so I couldn't even touch it. But of course, when I was done, I took the gloves off and reached out and I touched the manuscript. So I have actually touched the sacred <laughs> manuscript. And, and, and um, now the now the uh, outsider art museum in New York knows that you're the one who did that. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but I want to ask, when you got to the end of the dog said Bow Wow, which is you know the first of the the, the Darger or Darger and Surplus stories, what made you want to continue? I mean, did you know right away that this was, this was something that you could return to, that it would unfold into a longer journey for the, the, these two characters? I, I knew that I could return to them, because at the end, they're looking back at the city burning, which was entirely their doing. And uh, and Surplus says, I cannot help but feel in part responsible for this. And mm-hmm. Darger, Darger says, London has burned down before and it will burn down again. You know, lift up your, your eyes. We're off to, to Moscow to uh, uh, the scam of our lives. And off they go. And the thing about a series character, about a series of stories is, is that basically at the end of each story you have to set the dial back to where you were at the beginning of the story. You know, the the Enterprise has always got to have the same people in it, and they're sailing off to find bold new worlds. And uh, and in my stories, uh, uh, they tend to be so fierce that this is not possible. A protagonist, one of my stories, is not <laughs> anxious to come back for a second helping. But Darker and Surplus are oblivious. They think that they're good people. They think they're having an excellent time. And they think that their lives are placid. They're completely deluded. They're completely out of touch. They're conning nobody as much as themselves. But they're having a good time in here somehow, in, in the midst of all this. Uh, so it makes them perfect series characters. Is that also the, you know, the charm of the stories, the fact that they are deluded, do you think? Yes, they never learn. They, 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 are, they, live, they live in a very cruel world with very horrible things uh, happening, and they're innocent in their own way. They don't, they don't realize how, how awful the world is. They make some comments though, you know, about it, you know, disapproving the presence of, of, of genocidal monsters from the Internet, but they, they don't really feel that it's anything that, all that important. Well, it's, it's interesting because it seems to me uh, in Chasing the Phoenix that we get a little bit more of this uh, distant backstory of, 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 of the mechanical civilization overthrowing uh, our civilization and the monsters from the Internet, as you say. Um, and part of what comes across is that this is sometimes dropped off in, 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 in bits of dialogue, but like a lot of my students, they seem completely oblivious to history. Um, they are. What happened in, in their distant past, um, nobody will ever be able to put together a really uh, solid timeline for this, was that humanity achieved utopia, which was very much like a society we have now, and then it fell. Um, I've been thinking about utopia. I've been thinking about the fact that you know there, there's this constant search for utopia, but the instant that you achieve utopia, it is going to end because human societies are not static. And so they're all set in the in in the post utopian future, um, which is a, a a future in which there's been this enormous catastrophe, which has conveniently destroyed everything that would make their kind of stories uh, hard to tell, <laughs> and and then left left a lot of. Uh, 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 a, 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 a lot of, of science, which is so far beyond anything we can achieve right now, that you can still have have miracles and wonders. So, um, it's a it's a convenient world for adventure. Does the arc of the stories and the novels begin to lead towards some kind of return to utopia? Or, or, or I mean, does it? Probably a better question actually is is more: is there an overall arching? 
structure to this? Is there somewhere where Dogger and Surplus are heading towards, ultimately? They are on an accidental journey around the world. Uh, oh, wow. If you put all the stories together, include, <coughs> there, are batch of, there are like three or four stories set in Europe. And at some point, as soon as I have free time, I want to go uh, back and, and write some more. Uh, they wander about randomly, and yet they're always trending uh, eastward from, um, from, from England mm-hmm. to France to Greece to Russia and now to China. And they do not realize that they are on a trip around the world, but they are actually uh, on a meaningful trip around the world. Uh, Surplus has to go back to uh, the gene mills in Winooski in the domain of western Vermont to confront his origins. There are reasons why he looks as he does and why a great deal of money was spent to create him. And he has got to come to grips with that. Um, and Darger ultimately has got to return to London, uh, his birthplace. Now, when they get to London, assuming they get to London, the trip around the world will be complete. Their adventures will not end, but my plan is that that will be at the point at which I stop chronicling those adventures. They would obviously go on because mm. they have no idea what they've been doing. But e- and everywhere they go, they, although they don't know it, they're catalysts. They're catalysts of change. And they're, and they're putting an end to the old world. They're doing, causing a lot of destruction, but it's actually very constructive destruction. And when they get back to London, Darger's going to find that it's transformed beyond his recognition. It can't be his home anymore. It's the dawn of a new age, but he'll never realize that. Well, when that, you say they're captured, uh, the, no, no, I was going to say that um, one of the things that strikes me more in <clears throat> more in chasing the phoenix, I think, than I did with, in dancing with bears, is that <clears throat> the actual changes are affected by the people that they encounter, uh, and and the who are seems to me relatively ineffective until Darger and Surplus show up with their various elaborate schemes, all of which seem to work too well, and then. Well, late in the novel, I'm not giving any spoilers away, not that I believe a lot in spoilers, but we find out that there's a reason why their schemes work better than they ought to. But you've got a character in this one named White Squall, who's an archaeologist, and she's, um, she's to me, one of the mo- most interesting characters in the book, uh, because she actually causes things to happen um, in a way that Darger and Surplus themselves don't. Well, all the, all the people in China uh, belong there, and, and they're... Um and they're engaged in um, constructive pursuits. They're trying to uh, better their world or else conquer their world uh, to make a place for themselves to further the uh, ambitions of, of their rulers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they all have, um, they all have purposes beyond uh, uh, merely... Uh, 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 merely self-interest. Uh, even the the outlaw Fire Orchid, uh, who is <laughs> who is even more of a scoundrel than Darger and Surplus is, uh, she's doing um, all all of her scheming uh, for her family. Mm-hmm. So, um, so of course, they're the people who are going to be making the constructive change. 
But as I said, um, Darger and Surplus are the ones who, who come in and just by their presence, by their meddling, make things just start, start avalanches, uh, mm-hmm. uh, make systems break down. How aware of you? Or how aware were you when writing uh, the Dargren surplus stories, and in fact, Chasing the Phoenix, of this tr- of a tradition in science fiction and fantasy of roguish pairings, which seems to come up again and again throughout the history of the field? I mean, most notably with Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Oh, I, I'm I'm very aware of it. I, I uh, huge fans, a uh, huge fan of of uh, Liber and specifically of Fafford and Mouser. I. Remember in college, I knew at least four people who wanted to be the mouser, <laughs> and uh, and not all of them were male. Um, uh, probably his Fawford and Mouser stories are are the, are the best that's ever been done along those lines, and probably the best that ever will be done along those lines. Uh, but as you say, there's there's been a long tradition of of uh, of these pairings. It seems to work very well. And I, I guess what I've noticed is it seems to be that we you know. They are popular again. I mean, the Dodger and Surplus stories have been very warmly received in in the science fiction and fantasy circles. I mean, I think the Dog Said Bow Wow won the the Nebula Award, I think, if I recall, and um, the Hugo, the Hugo Award. Hugo Award. I would have given the Nebula Award. Uh, and I mean, I see that Joe Abercrombie's you know, writing pairings. I see that Garth Nix does it. There's several others, and it just seems there's something particularly attractive about it. Uh, I mean, obviously, well, the, you know, the influence of Liber or Liber himself, but there's just some, something. There seems to be something in the mechanism of having a pairing like that that allows stories to function particularly well when you want to do this sort of thing. Well, um, the Fafford and Mauser stories. I actually asked Fritz Liber about this once. Um, they are horror stories. Mm. Only you don't realize they're horror stories because Fawford and Mauser always get away at the end. The end of the story, uh, you, they they they're on their horses. They've got a bag full of treasure and they're galloping away. <laughs> it's a it's an uplifting moment. And meanwhile, behind them, there's an entire city is being overrun by ghouls and, and cannibals. <laughs> and, you know, but that doesn't mind because Fawford and Mauser got away. Uh, and. Uh, but it, it, it just the 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 structure of that allows you to get away with so much. Did he have um, uh, the, because he published the first of those in Weird Tales? I think did did he think of those as horror stories conceptually, and then he realized he had a, a series character going, or did he think of them as comic stories with a horror overlay? I I, I asked him about this. I asked him if. I, I, I said my theory was that they were horror stories, and was this true? And he said everything I wrote was horror story. Everything I wrote was horror. So apparently, that's how he thought of them. You know, it, 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 it's worth keeping in mind that he was in correspondence with with H.P. Lovecraft as sure. a young man. So that was a, a very strong influence. Well, well I mean, how? Do you, sorry, go, Gary, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm not, I'm, you go ahead. I was going to say, how do you think about Darger and Surplus then? Do you think about them as science fiction and fantasy stories, science fiction, or or something else? I mean, it strikes me they're they're, they're science fiction and very much science fiction, but that's my own reading of them. I think of them as science fiction stories because I'm not really um, a horror writer. I've written a few stories which are horror stories because um, sometimes you'll have an idea that's so good that you'll have to write it. And, uh, but I've never been a horror fan. I had a, a conversation with Ellen Datlow about this. We had the, the sh- world's shortest symposium on horror <laughs> fiction. I, I told her that 
I didn't like horror because it, it scared me. And she said, that's why I like it. Mm. And we sort of looked at each other and said, well, that, that conversation, that about says it all. <laughs> no, she said, that's why I love it. That's why I should be yeah. fair to her. There. And I'm also tempted to ask, you write these stories about Dargren Surplus where they leave chaos and transformative chaos behind them. Are you tempted to write the stories in the aftermath that don't involve Dargren Surplus? No, not at all. Okay, uh, they're they're such they're such good company, yeah. and uh, and and part part of the charm of this kind of story is a blithe unconcern with the consequences yeah. and the aftermath. Uh, that, that's why they're, they're always moving on. They, they 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 never have to live with the consequences, and consequently, the reader doesn't have to think about them either. If you work in science fiction, you're dealing a lot with consequences and that can be you know uh, if you have a particularly if you have a, a depressing story that can be very wearying but with Darger and Surplus you just like off they go and they're happy and so are we mm. this is uh, this is completely off the wall but so if we're going to say something but when, when you're describing people being oblivious to the consequences and they can simply you know, leave and go on. I was thinking, obviously, of Fafford and the Grey Mouser and that whole tradition, which includes even a Michael, short Michael Chabon novel, Gentleman of the Road. But the other, the other thing that comes to mind when you were talking is Hope and Crosby in the road movies. <laughs> <laughs> because they're, they're, which are very interesting kind of meta movies. They, you know, they, if, if they get frustrated with being trapped, they'll, they'll crash through into a set of a Western movie and they're completely in a different world. It, it's a, it's a good comparison. It has nothing to do with my fiction. <laughs> I wouldn't think so, but it's one. One thing I'd like to ask, I'm curious about, is how do you choose what to write next? Which seems like a fairly simple question and, and possibly a slightly inane one. But I look and I think you know, you've, you did uh, the Dragons of Babel, and then you moved on to Dancing with Bears. I mean, how, what is it that attracts you to you know to invest the amount of time it takes to write a novel? Um, the f- the fact that I can write that novel then. I mean, if if I if I were in absolute control, I would have written the novel I'm working on now, and then written the second Dargren surplus novel. You know, that's ideally I'd like to write a Dargren surplus novel, um, which I think of as entertainments in the Graham Greene kind of sense. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and then a more quote-unquote serious novel and then a Dargan surplus novel, etc. I think that would actually in career terms be, probably be uh, much wiser than doing the two novels one after the other. Um, but uh, that was a novel I could write. And uh, when I finish a novel, I give myself a little time. I do nothing but write short stories. Uh, but then I have to start the next novel. Mm-hmm. And I look <clears throat> at the possibilities and I see which one can I write. It's if I if I get up in the morning and I go to the typewriter and I can't work on whatever uh, I'm working on, I've got uh, about thirty post-it notes near my uh, uh, near my desk. And it's got the name of a, a story I'm working on on them, mm-hmm. and I'll just start. Uh, I'll just look at them and see if any of them appeals to me, and then I'll you know boot it up and start working on it. And sometimes I'll boot a story up and then. Nothing happens, and I'll boot another one, another one, another one, maybe five or six or seven, before I find one um, that comes alive under the keyboard. Mm. So, How does, um, go ahead and finish your thought. 
Oh, so it's a, um, so basically, I'm I'm not in control here. I'm 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 more of a of a device that the hindbrain uses to, to write these stories. Is this how you and Eileen Gunn work together on those stories, which are <laughs> marvelous, and and they seem to me to be real collaborations, and that they don't sound exactly like either one of you, but they sound like both of you at the same time. If that makes any sense. That they do. Um, I think Eileen would 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 compare it more to the process, more to the Civil War. <laughs> uh, uh, I I write stories with Eileen uh, in large part because, uh, well, essentially because I like Eileen's fiction. I'd like to see more of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm always encouraging her to write more. I'm, I, and I, you know, I'll, I'll email her uh, an opening line for a story and say, say, here, Eileen, just write this story today. Don't think about it. Don't go through all your mental processes. Just <laughs> write it right now. Give me, give me like, like <laughs> 700 words and, and be done. And she'll take then she'll work on it for a while and decide that it's a novel. And so she's got to start researching it. <laughs> and... Uh, and when we and when we we work on a, a a collaboration, it's oh, constant arguing about 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 what have I done to her wonderful character? Uh, <laughs> why did I make him a communist? I did not make him a communist, Eileen. You made him a communist. Oh, uh, as as far as I can tell, Eileen cannot remember which parts she's written and which parts I've written. And I, I, can t- I, could, I could go through the stories and tell you each word who wrote them. So we're, we're very, very, very different, but um, we respect each other enough that we can do this. I'm curious, how different is collaborating with uh, Eileen than collaborating with uh, Gardner and Jack back in the day? Um, a huge difference there, which is uh, that there was a really clear hierarchy set up when I started collaborating with them, they were um, they were both established writers, and I was nobody. Mm-hmm. So um, we'd get together and we would bang out a plot. You know, of Jack Dan come breezing into town. I was like, just like thirty foot long limousine <laughs> with a cigar <laughs> in, in his teeth. You know, and he come and, and go into to Gardner's hideous little a little cat-infested apartment, <laughs> and they give me a call, and I I come over, and and we'd spend the night, the the evening, like, uh, like Gardner would workshop uh, something that that Jack had had brought, and Jack would would, would give investment advice, and they'd plot out an anthology, and we'd all plot out a story or two, and then, um. And then typically for a story, I would take the notes for the story and I would go and I would do a first draft or as far into a first draft as I could. And then it would go to Jack and then it would go to Gardner. And at the end, when we had the story the way that we all wanted it, um, Gardner got to have the final, the final draft. He would just go write the whole thing through so that it would have one unified voice. And this worked because everybody knew that Jack outranked me and Gardner outranked Jack. <laughs> uh, so, but, so but, the, 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 
the that, hierarchy was very clear. Yeah. But that's not how it's been when you've been drawn back to other collaborations, because you, you do seem to occasionally get drawn back throughout your career. I, I, I go back to collaborations um, to try to learn something that I don't know. Uh, I wrote one story with uh, William Gibson, mm. and it was uh, Gardner told me that, that that Bill had sent a letter to him that he worked from images, and he had this one image of a group of rednecks who were projective telepaths, but all that they could project were World War One airplanes, and he had a picture of them leaning over uh, an image of them leaning over a uh, uh, a pool table and having a dog fight with little airplanes over it. Mm-hmm. which was a really wonderful image. And when Gardner told me this, I happened to have a story that I needed a central image for. I couldn't find something to make it work. And I, it, when I was, this was in the, the early, early 80s, and I was going to make it video games, but that didn't work right. So I ran across Gibson at, at a convention. I think it was the first time I met him. And mm-hmm. so Gardner told me about this really great idea you had. And Bill, who's almost psychic, uh, said, said, you can write it if you want. He said, or if you want, we can collaborate. And I said, oh, you know, I'd like to collaborate. And the reason I did that, I could have written the story without him. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to see what chops he had. Everybody was really excited about his, his writing style, mm-hmm. uh, about the way he put words together. And I wanted to see exactly how he put words together. So I was studying and learning from him as, as I did this story. I did not know for sure the collaboration would work until it came to description when, uh, when the protagonist walks into the pool hall for the first time and Bill wrote this bravura paragraph describing the, the pool hall and the smell of hair oil and the squeak of, a, of chalk on a, on a cue and the strings of uh, Christmas, paper Christmas bells uh, faded pink uh, up above and on the one wall a photograph of, uh, of somebody's granddaddy's prize buck gone the sepia color of cockroach wings <laughs> and I saw this paragraph and I said this bastard is going to get written <laughs> and uh, sure enough, at the climax of, of 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 the story, where the secondary character leans is is absolutely defeated, just be, is absolutely defeated, and just before he leans over and throws up in his own lap, he has a look on his face like a deer caught in the headlight, and that was the same deer in Bill's picture on the wall. <laughs> so, um, so I got I got my money's worth from that collaboration. <laughs> And then, I mean, you ended up with, what, finishing a story by Avram Davidson at one point as well. I was going to ask about that very thing. What, what was that like? How, how did you end up working on Mickle Reed? Um, well, uh, Grania Davis had all this, these leftover bits of manuscript that she didn't want wasted. Um, and Mickle Reed was actually notes for a, um, for a novel. Mm. And which which never got written. He did a lot of that kind of thing, not writing. Um, for such a prolific writer, he did an astonishing amount of not writing. <laughs> and I I took it and I turned it into um, a, a postmodern piece of fiction. 
And all that took was craft. I, I applied a lot of craft to it, but that was all that it took. Yeah. I think much more interesting, he wrote a story called uh, uh, Virgil Magus, King Without Country. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And as and, and, and it went to uh, Gardner de Zwa again, and he suggested, he, the problem with the story is if you read it, it read like the most brilliant man in the world talking about whatever entered into his head at any particular instant. Just maundering on about this, that, the price of salts, uh, court relations in ancient Rome, and then in the very last paragraph it all kind of snaps together and you realize that the entire thing is as tightly made as a Swiss watch and there really (laughs) is a plot except the instant that you realize there's a plot it ends. So it it didn't give the traditional um, rewards for reading a story, <laughs> and uh, and Gardner suggested that uh, Grania ask me to to uh, complete it. Yeah. And I looked at it and I looked and I said, I said I can't start from there and then write the second half of the story because the contrast of prose would be just too extreme. Mm-hmm. So I. Um, so I took the very opening, uh, which is beautifully written and very Baroque and, and very civilized and, and very involved, and I took and I let that go on for as long as I thought that um, a reasonable reader would let me get away with it, and I stopped that, and then I wrote, and then, then I, I wrote, uh, it was about to explode, <laughs> <laughs> and I threw in an action scene. Uh, and then after the scene played out, it went back to Avram, and then it alternated like this, uh, back and forth. And I used little, I did two tricks there. One was I used little clues as to what was going on, which was pretty opaque uh, in Avram's story, and I expanded them. Uh, and I also threw in uh, uh, a, a, a few other things, like a... Uh, a, a, a very naive but charming Chinese uh, 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 monk, I believe he was. And the other thing I did was I went to other parts of his writing and I stole sentences f- from here and there, very ornate sentences from his nonfiction, mm. and threw them into my own prose. <laughs> so that the contrast between Avram's, you know, opalescent prose and, and my own uh, uh, differently styled prose wouldn't be so obvious. Yeah. And I was really quite pleased with that. Uh, at, at the, a couple of critics said you couldn't tell which parts, you couldn't tell, tell where Avrams had ended and where mine had yeah. begun. And that was because I didn't try to simply tack on a second half. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm also curious, you've spent, throughout your career, you've always... T- written a, you know, a, a lot of short fiction and you've always moved periodically back to novels f- for whatever reason. And when I look at, well, let's say Jack, Jack Dan, I mean, whenever he writes novels, he tends to carve off pieces to create, you know, to, to use as short fiction. But you seem to almost rehearse your novels in some of the stories that come before them. I mean, to some degree with the Dargren sur- surplus books, to some degree with the dragon books. You know, is that a deliberate thing? It, was it even accurate? Uh- well, it, it's accurate. I saw. I saw when when, um, when Jack did uh, uh, the man who melted. Mm. Oh, or is it the man that melted? Man who melted. 
the man who melted. Um, he would take every time he was done with a section of it. He would he would take that section to to Gardner, and together they would workshop the plot, which was fascinating to watch because each of those sections he he would take, and while retaining almost all the prose the same, and certainly all the characters the same, he would turn it into an, an entirely different story, where where the the meaning of the events it was extremely different. Mm. And it was fascinating to watch, and and the and it was brilliant too. Uh, some of those, a uh, uh, couple of those stories uh, were on the um, Nebula palette, mm. in fact. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I tend to use uh, my stories as uh, a laboratory for the longer fiction. So uh, I wrote. Um, a Scherzo with Tyrannosaur. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that was I I, I was uh, uh, I was about to embark on on one year uh, researching paleontology, uh, hanging out with paleontologists, you know, <laughs> getting in the car, driving hundreds of miles to look at a specific fossil. Uh, and the purpose of that story was to work out the mechanics of the time travel system that's behind it all. Oh. And when that story and, and that story worked very well uh, for that purpose. In fact, I I threw that story in as a, a chapter, although I changed the uh, I changed the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the period that was set in, yeah. and I changed the tyrannosaur to a plesiosaur, and I changed all the events and the meaning of the events. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> it was almost the same. The same. <laughs> And I guess what you did that with Cold Iron as well for uh, the Iron Dragon's daughter, um, and, and, and a few others. Cold Iron was was just the um, was just the opening of Iron Dragon's okay. daughter. There, I think there's maybe uh, maybe two sentences had to be changed for the novel. Okay. Yeah, um, it was just one of those things where you come up with a, an idea and it grabs you. And you start to write it, and then when the story is done, you go. That story could go on from here. That story could continue. Oh. And so, that novel, the Iron Dragon's Daughter, which starts with uh, Jane Alderberry, uh, is a girl who's been stolen by the elves and forced to work in a factory building dragons. So the very opening section, called Iron, is the Dickensian right. section. Mm. And then the rest of it is does come in sections. There's a section where she's in high school, so it's even worse than being imprisoned in a dragon. And there's a section when she's in college, and uh, and so on. Uh, so it, it was in its way episodic. But when I was writing it, I was thinking uh, it was I was deliberately writing it in a series of gyres. I was thinking of uh, Yates's uh, series of gyres uh, mm. because her problem was that. Um, she was she had been stolen from our world, and she was in a world she didn't belong in, and there was no place for her in that world. And she kept trying to find a place. And every time she tried to find a place for herself, it ended in failure. And it, but at the end of the failure, she would pull herself up and dust herself off and try again on another level. And ultimately. <laughs> She does not realize this until the very end. What she's looking for is meaning in, in life. <laughs> so, um, 
there's only one place you can get this. this is why at the end she has got to to actually meet the goddess face to face and ask a, a few harsh questions. So I was pleased you with that book up and down. I have to say, as much as people are happy to see, I was happy to see Chasing the Phoenix, another darker and surplus novel. I know you have a lot of readers who are wondering if we're going to see any more of of of, of that world of the Iron Dragon's daughter and the dragons of of uh, Babylon. I um, I'm working on the third novel. Excellent. In Good. Fact. Good for us. And uh, this one is all about mothers and daughters. <laughs> so uh, it's in fact originally the um, the when I first thought of the idea the title was going to be Mother of Dragons, but this uh, obscure writer named George Martin has made <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Absolutely uh, not possible. Hmm. So I, I don't have a title for it now, but it, uh, uh, my agent tells me it should have the word dragons in it somewhere. Uh, well, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, how did you move from, was it the book that you couldn't progress with when you were pulled into uh, writing Chasing the Phoenix? Because, I mean, I, I notice that there's been, what, about four years between uh, Dance with Bears and Dance with Bears and Chasing the Phoenix. Um, I'd have to I'd have to check. It would be one of the books I couldn't progress with. <laughs> uh, there was a um, there was somewhere in there I was working on uh, a novel called uh, which uh, called Empire of the Air, and this is, which began in like eighteen twenty Philadelphia. Uh, and a young man gets caught up on this enormous airship expedition around the world, which he slowly comes to realize is traveling through parallel worlds, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and it's another another case of of seeking home. And I found that for whatever reasons that did not feel right for me in the structure that it was. I I I, I published the novella. And I may yet someday find the right structure for that and come back to it. I don't think I don't think I was trying to write the third um, dragon book because uh, the first the first one is about Jane who has no place in the world. Yeah. The second one is about um, uh, uh, Will. Dra- what? Yes, yes. Uh, Will Le Fay, yeah. well, and Will Will does belong in his world. So his 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 quest is the exact opposite of hers, to find a place for himself in a world where he belongs. Um, and that came about because uh, I was asked to contribute to a book of dragon stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, Marvin Kaye has been together. And I said, well, I don't know, but if I come up with an idea, I'll, I'll write it for you. And I went home, and as this sometimes happened, the idea immediately popped into my head. And I wrote the opening scene of the, the novel. And that was so good that I went and wrote the first story, the first section of it as a story. And I got published as King Dragon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at that point, it was obvious to me that there was the whole story. Uh, and I went to uh, John Clute, who has this elaborate theory of fantasy, and I asked him to to give me the outlines of it so I could see if I could violate his theory in every possible way. <laughs> you were going to say that. Just, you were checking off everything you're not allowed to do in fantasy in that novel. 
Well, it was. It was. Uh, he has this theory that the, the land is suffering from a thinning, and my feeling is right. that the land is perfectly fl- is perfectly fat and happy and not thinned at all. <laughs> and at the end of of the fantasy novel, the the king is restored. And I said, well, at the end of my fantasy novel, the king will be thrown out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to see if I could if I if I could just systematically break the expectations while still giving a satisfying fantasy novel. So, But after that was written, you've essentially got thesis and antithesis. Mm-hmm. And you've also got two-thirds of a trilogy. At, you know, at the end of the first novel, there was no need for the second novel. But at the end of the second novel, there was a need for a third novel. But mm-hmm. the problem is the third novel would have to be uh, a synthesis and it would have to explain everything that was raised in the first two novels. So, um, I had no idea what a synthesis would be uh, until I came up with, with uh, the idea for this one. So, now I'm working on it. And, and when do you feel like you will be, be done with it? Is that the kind of thing you, you can predict when you're writing? Or is it do you just end up where you end up when you're done? Um. I've got I've got a few chapters written right now. It it's it goes on an asymptotal curve. The very beginning of these books is really slow, mm. and the um, and then and then they speed up as they go along, as 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 as, as the basic conceptual problems are all solved, mm. and I can just write the plot then. Yeah. You know, as, as I as I as I the more I understand it, the faster I can go. So it'll be at least a year, maybe a year and a half, depending on how fast the next two chapters go. I understand the technical problems, but um, I think um, the Dragons of Babel, maybe more than the Iron Dragon's Daughter, maybe even more than the Darker and Surplus things, looked like you were having a lot of fun just subverting everything you could find. Um, and I remember, I may, I may not be remembering the scene exactly, but I re, I'm, I'm re, actually remembering my own review of the thing, where, because I'd, I'd, I'd found this quotation from Ursula Le Guin saying there, something like there are no um, transistor radios in, in <laughs> Elfland, her novel about Elf, her, her essay. Uh, um, I don't about, know if I did that deliberately or not, but I know that when I wrote it, I could not avoid thinking of that. And it, but for me, that was a magical moment because uh, they're on the train to, 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 to the Tower of Babel and somebody switches on, on the radio and, and out comes this music that sounds like the music that was played, sung by the stars on the first day of creation. And, and he says, what is that? And somebody says, it's... Um, it's Take the A Train by Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington, yeah. <laughs> and you know, which, uh, and what I, the reason I was happy with that is if you stop to think, in fantasy, they're always describing this absolutely wonderful, cosmic, beautiful music. Yeah. And then you go, well, what would it sound like? And then you say, Take the A Train by Duke Ellington. Yeah, yes, exactly. that is exactly that beautiful. That yeah. is that is that is that that is exactly what they're reaching for. That kind of beauty. I was happy with that. I also note that. Um, uh, Rachel Pollock 
uh, also violated uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's essay because Le Guin said that you could not set a fantasy in Poughkeepsie, and Rachel Pollock did. So, <laughs> with <laughs> unquenchable fire and then uh, temporary agency, and they were yeah. both wonderful books. Mm. And we should mention the title. I, I just remember the title of the. Le Guin essay is from Elfland to Poughkeepsie, yeah. and yeah. in her defense, she wrote it thirty some years ago. So it's not as though this is. Uh, oh, I, you it, don't. It, in, a, in a sense, you it, could see it as a challenge to fantasy writers. None of us, none of us, have any complaints about Le Guin uh, or her writings. Uh, mm. But you know, when whenever somebody says says you can't do that, well, you know, how many writers are there now who have written stories set on the other side of, of the singularity? Yeah, yeah. It's it's as soon as you say you can't do it, that's just an invitation to find something really interesting. I'm curious. Well, you, sorry, go ahead, Gary. I was just going to say I was going to change the subject a little bit because you were talking about um, William Gibson earlier, and I'm I'm guessing, but wasn't wasn't in the drift part of that same series of Ace specials yeah. that was so hugely influential back in the early '80s? Oh yeah, Terry that was uh, that was Terry Carr put them together, and there was yeah. um, uh, there was uh, Stan Robinson's first uh, novel, there was Green Eyes by Lucius Shepard, there was uh, Howard, Howard Waldrop's first novel, there was Neuromancer. <laughs> yeah, um, it was an incredible line, and it was just Carr was on the ground, and he was paying attention to all the new writers, and he got permission to buy first novels at a time when we were all just sitting there, we were just all, all there on the ground working on our first novels and just ready to be snatched up. The only one that didn't seem to lead on to a major career was Carter Schultz's. Yeah. Think, which is an, an odd thing. I mean, it's an amazing uh, success rate to have five out of the six writers in, in a launch series go on to really significant careers in the field. But for some reason, he didn't. And I've never been quite sure why. I think there's been one or two collections of stories in a novel or something since. I, I, I don't know him, so I can't say. You know, you always guess personal problems. Mm. You know, mm. um, uh, maybe. <laughs> but, but who knows? Uh, he, maybe he just got interested in something else, too. Yeah. It, it, it was, uh, in, in some ways, at least in the last... Um, 50 years, I'd say, the most remarkable string of editorial successes within a, what, a two or three year period. I mean, Carr must have been some sort of genius. Yeah, he was. Uh, he knew, he, he was one of those people who just know the field inside and out. Uh, and it was I was, on the, nebu so, sorry, what you I was on the Nebula jury with him for several years and uh, our, our, our remit was to read everything that had been published in science fiction and um, to then vote on whether or not to add one work per category to the Nebula ballot. Um, there were complicated reasons why this seemed a good idea at the time. And it was enormous amounts of work. But the big payoff was getting letters from uh, the other people, most specifically from him. Uh, he was, his, uh, his knowledge of the field was breathtaking. Its insight into it was quite wonderful. What was it like actually working on Into the Drift with him? I mean, I've heard stories from, <clears throat> well, actually, I've heard stories from Bill Gibson talking about having his manuscript wrestled around and, and, and redirected. What was that like for you? Um, he asked for changes to, I think, four or five words. 
Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, was that as gentle a hand as you'd expected handing in a first novel? I don't know what I expected at all. Um, I, I suspect I was surprised. Um, throughout my career, I've had, I would say, minimal uh, editorial uh, changes in my manuscripts. Uh, uh, I can't say why. Who would you just? I, mean, I was going to ask earlier, but we drifted on elsewhere. How, how important have editors then been? Because I mean, it seems to be the, the largest editorial influence on your work hasn't been someone who's has always been your direct editor, and that would be someone like Gardner. You know, Gardner is uh, uh, an amazing influence on my work. Uh, he was. Uh, for the first several years, he was uh, uh, my first reader. I would always take yeah. uh, works to him and, and get his advice. And his advice is always good because it doesn't try to make your story into his kind of story. He makes tries to make your story into the story it's trying to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so uh, it's. I, I, I can't think I've ever heard of anybody being in, being upset by Gardner's suggestions. Uh, he's just an astonishing story doctor. I had Isn't once, I went to visit him and he said, he said, uh, uh, congratulations, Michael, you just finished the story. And I said, oh, well, that's, that's nice. Because I knew I hadn't finished a, a, a collaborative story. And he said, well, wait here. And he, he, you know, he finished typing the page and he stomped a manuscript together and handed it to me. And I had gotten, I think, two chapters this was before my first novel, I got two yeah. chapters into a novel about multi, uh, about parallel world traveling uh, 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 cocaine dealers <laughs> and, no, no uh, um, I, I tell like uh, con men mm. and I got that far in before I realized that I did not like these people and I don't like con men uh, I, I've met some, they're not nice people uh, so I gave it up, and Gardner thought I, it had a, like a really good scam in there based on on the on the the big scams, the big store scams, mm. and so Gardner thought this was a terrible way. So I took the first page and the last page of my chapter off, and they wrote a new beginning and he wrote a new ending, and he changed it into um, into a, 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 a story about the time patrol and uh, cocaine dealers. <laughs> 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 Which one thing this meant was, given how conservative the, uh, the the field was in the early '80s, we couldn't sell this to any of the science yeah. fiction <laughs> magazines. So we ended up selling it to High Times. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you sorry? Continue, Gary, please. I was just going to say that the the I'm, I'm I'm wondering now what Terry Carr and Gardner have in common because both of them fit your description of people who just know the field, in, field inside and out. They know detail, they remember details of, it seems to me, thousands of stories and novels. And yet both have had the capacity to recognize that something that violated most of the conventions of the field was going to be something new and something innovative and something worth looking at. Um, there are a lot of editors who knew the field inside and out back in the 80s that probably would have taken a pass on In the Drift, on Neuromancer, on... Uh, them bones on a, a lot of these things, so the, the the brilliance seems to me to be in in knowing not only what the field has been but what it hasn't yet been, and and recognizing something new that still would fit into that 
history in some way. Does that make sense? Yeah, they're both very receptive to to the new, and they they didn't insist that things um, that stories adhere to the way stories always have. I know when when Gardner became editor of Asimov's. Uh, he went in with like a little list of things he'd like to accomplish. And they were, they were all very specific things. And one of them was, there was a group of five stories. I thought of it as, as a gang of five stories, uh, which couldn't be sold, and he wanted to buy them. And I forget exactly, I forget two of them now, but uh, one of them was, one. I forget three now, because one of them was mine. Uh, there were two others I forget. Uh, one was uh, Pat Cadigan's Rock On. Mm-hmm. And mm. one was uh, Howard Waldrop's Flying Saucer Rock and Roll. Nobody would touch any of these stories because <laughs> they were too weird. Pat Cadigan's story was about punks, you know. Um, mm. and, and, and Howard Waldrop's was about doo-wop music. These were things that <laughs> nobody wanted to even think about. I, I, I remember, you know, enthusing about... Uh, about Howard's story to George Sithers and, and he <laughs> kind of got this stiff, frozen look of horror on his face. <laughs> uh, largely because it's also not about much. It, it's, it, it's a strange story to be as effective as it is. Well, it's a lovely little story. It is, it is. I, I wanted to ask you as well, one of the things that you have been doing over the last several years, is writing this series of Mongolian wizard stories over at Tor.com. H- how did you come to start writing those? I, I am absolutely not sure. I do know that I was thinking about how uh, there used to be uh, a couple of... There used to be the series of... Um, Odra. There's a series of stories about uh, 19th century wizards. Um, oh, the name's gone right out, out, out of my... The Lord Darcy stories. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Everybody used to know the Lord Darcy stories. And uh, there were a couple by Fred Pohl that were gathering Operation Werewolf uh, that were, you know, magical, uh, kind of anachronistic, but not entirely anachronistic stories. <laughs> and I thought I wanted to write um, some about, some about uh, something like that. And I started to write... Uh, when I wrote the first one... Um, it turned out to be um, darker than you would have thought, given the the origins. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and uh, and but but as soon as I finished one, I knew I recognized it as a series story, partly because the the models for that were series stories, but also because uh, it was. It 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 it's it. The first story is set just before the beginning of war, and there's a large war coming on, so I could see that there was, you know, a, a long story arc that could be done, and uh, you know, without giving away too much, there uh, I I know, it'll be about twenty one stories all told. Wow, which I think hmm. six are uh, I think six are are written and sold. It could be seven. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, and so I know I know who lives and who dies, and what the major points are going to be. And sort of the interest in this sort of thing is not just doing a series story, but telling a, a larger story with with uh, emotional resonance over the whole body of it. 
uh, and so that that seemed interesting to me. And also, Ritter is the hero, the uh, uh, the uh, lieutenant in the the werewolf corps. Yeah. Is uh, an interesting character. Uh, when I began writing him, he was, you know, I just I needed somebody in that position, and I figured I would figure out his personality as the story went along. Mm-hmm. And by the end of uh, the first story, although I think he's a, a perfectly sympathetic character, <laughs> uh, and he's he's a he's a he's a decent man trying to be a decent man in very difficult circumstances I realized that what he w- he was also he was a proto-Nazi if Adolf Hitler had come along he could have swept up Ritter in the enthusiasm so that Ritter's always although he does not realize it he's always on the edge he's he's always on the edge of moral catastrophe mm-hmm. so that his um his his challenge through the series of stories is to is to retain his soul and uh and of course as as a writer i this my job is to make that not a very easy or pleasant thing for him so we shall see <laughs> well if there's supposed to be 21 of these th- of the stories there's what four of them i think are out at the moment on tour and there's i think one more scheduled before the end of the year at least and two more written and sold to tour. For, for some, is, is is there a time in your mind when what I guess would be the first of several books of these stories would be compiled? Well, twenty-one stories—they're pretty short stories. They're like like uh, uh, five or six thousand words on average. So they would all fit into one book. So this is another decade-long project to sort of sit in the background and come out bit by bit. It is, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, as as no, no, don't apologize. I'm, I'm trying to... As long as we're just going to annoy you, Michael, with more things we'd like to see. Um, one of the things I've found valuable um, is, is some of the nonfiction and critical work you've done, which is... Uh, there's a monograph on Hope Merlees, which is really the only monograph on Hope Merlees. There was a lecture that you gave and published somewhere back in the 80s on, on postmodernism that I know I and a number of other people, I think John Kessel... Uh, was one who just used this to explain the whole concept of postmodernism to mostly science fiction readers who were pretty much hostile to the concept in the first place. And um, and, and, and there have been other essays, and uh, there was a piece, what am I thinking, on, on James Branch Cabell. Um, so are you working on anything along those lines? Because you are a really very interesting critic and scholar of the field as well as a writer. Um, I suppose I am. Um, I didn't start out to be. There's a long tradition in in science fiction of of writers writing nonfiction about science fiction, um, partly oh, yeah. because for many decades uh, critics wouldn't. And so, if you needed something intelligent said about science fiction, uh, it had to be the writers themselves. Uh, and I think there's a particular value to that. Um, my longer pieces, the the Hope Merley's essay and the the Cavill essay, uh, those were both treated as hobbies. I was careful not to give my real writing time to them. That was all mm. done on weekends or on days when I said I'm not going to write at all. I'll just work on. Hello. And uh, with uh, her nephew, uh, uh, Count Robin Ian Evelyn 
Stuart Delalon Merleys, yep. who was the uh, Laird of Greater Barnara, uh, the titular Prince of Coronata, and the Rouge Dragon Pursuivant in the <laughs> College of Heralds. So, you know, it's like getting a phone call from a count is for an American. It's like getting a phone call from a talking rabbit. You know, so, so, uh, so I had a great deal of fun uh, researching it. Uh, I should mention that there's a scholar named Sandeep Parmar who oh. edited the, uh, the uh, complete poetry of Hope Murley's, which is one of the strangest collections you'll ever have because it's got one great modernist poet poem called Paris, a Poem. Uh, yes. And then it has a lot of very conventional poetry. Uh, you can't reconcile the two at all. And she is working on uh, a biography of Murley's, which will be quite wonderful. She has access to materials that were not available when, um, when I was writing uh, my uh, essay, and um, and she has the academic skills that I lack. So, uh, it's it's a book that I'm I'm looking forward to enormously. Her 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 biography. Oh, that'll be fascinating. What was the name of the anthropologist or the scholar that Merlise was involved with for most of her life at Oxford? Uh, do you know oh, what I'm uh, talking about? Jane Ellen Harrison. Yes. Yes. Harrison. Yes. Uh, she was. Um, Jane Ellen Harrison, well, Hope was her prize student mm -hmm. and may have been her lover, but maybe not. Uh, Jane was uh, older than her father was. Mm -hmm. And um, she, uh, Jane always referred to Hope as, as her ghostly daughter. Uh, it, they, had, and they had an interesting relationship and uh, Hope was present when Jane Ellen Harrison burned all her papers. Uh, so the uh, Jane Ellen Harrison archive consists entirely of uh, now of letters that um, that Hope uh, solicited after Jane's death. Oh wow! And it drives scholars mad because anyone who wants to write about Harrison immediately goes to the archive and discovers an archive consisting entirely of letters about the archive. Oh. <laughs> There's a novel in there somewhere. For people who don't yes. know what talking about, we should mention that, that Lud in the Mist is probably one of the great classics of early 20th century fantasy and probably would be unknown to the American readers now if it hadn't been for Lynn Carter. Yes, absolutely. Um, he he found he found the novel. He was astonished to have found the novel. A friend of his showed it to him. He said, "You know, I've been reading fantasy all my life. Where did where did this come from?" Mm -hmm. um, and be, because the copyright laws said that you could, he threw it into print without bothering to find out what she thought of it. Uh, she was, she was not amused. She was still alive. She lived up until 1978. Wow, uh, um, and and you know there, you know a, a great many lost opportunities to interview her. Uh, she was uh, she was interviewed by uh, a, a few people, and 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 they're valuable sources of information. Uh, but you can't help but wish that fandom had been aware of her, and mm -hmm. 
you could have had a lot of those fanish interviews, which wouldn't have been great interviews, but there would have been nuggets of information all the way through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we normally talk for about an hour, and it seems to me that we've been doing that. And I just wanted to bring us back a little bit uh, bef- before we wind up and just touch briefly again on Chasing the Phoenix, which is due out in, well, will be due out about a week after this podcast goes to air, because it'll come out uh, on the weekend of August the 3rd, 4th, I think. And that is August 11th. Well, the book comes out the 11th, but the podcast will come out just before. Ah, oh, sorry, excuse me. Uh, though you can obviously pre-order the novel uh, Chasing the Phoenix now from any reputable dealer and they will make it available to you when it's when it's coming out. Just quickly, we didn't touch on it. This is the latest installment in an ongoing cycle. How readily in your mind can a new reader slot themselves in or should they be rushing off and downloading the, the, the earlier works now so that they can catch up? I, I, I write all, all the Dargon Surplus are written as standalone fantasy or science fiction, depending on how you look at it. Um, and you don't need, you don't need to re- have read anything beforehand to, um, right. to follow this with complete enjoyment, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Actually, I'm curious because I just noticed, is there any reason why, or is, is that why Chasing the Phoenix isn't branded as a darker and surplus novel? It's, it's not described as a series novel in any way on the cover or anything else like that? Uh, I have no idea. These are these are publishers' <laughs> mysteries, uh, not not for the ears of writers. Um, I, I I write the books. I put them out there. I I trust in my um, in my agent and my editor to do their best. And uh, and certainly in this book, I think they're doing a really good job. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. It's a beautiful. It's an interesting point, though. That uh, it's 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 a disadvantage. I think that science fiction and fantasy writers face compared, let's say, to mystery writers, that a, a series of mysteries, whether it's, let's say, Robert Parker's Spencer series or Sarah Paretsky's Warshawski series, you don't, assume, you, don't, you don't assume there's any continuity. You just assume that this is a series <laughs> based on characters. And it seems to me that one of the, I just never thought of this, there are relatively few series of fantasies or science fiction novels that are based on characters rather than on some kind of overarching storyline. Oh, oh, surely uh, Keith Laumer's uh, Retief novels and okay. uh, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, um, oh, and 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 Paul Anderson, uh, the Flandry books, Flandry books, and the, the yeah. and so on. There, there, there have been enough of them, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I, but but the point is that that. That at some point in, in the readers' minds, I think it's already there. The Darger and Surplus are kind of a franchise and not a single narrative. Even though you're right, they're going around ruining one culture after another. Uh, <laughs> in Russia, and now they're in. Actually, they they don't ruin China. I shouldn't give away the ending. Though. Well, uh, giving. But at, but at the end, after uh, after China has been conquered. Um, mm. There are changes. There are changes that are going to be made, uh, just not by them. <laughs> so um, there's that. When the whole series is done, it'll matter what order you read them in. Yeah. Um, ah. If you want to get to, if you want to get the the enjoyment of the whole meta narrative. Yeah. Uh, but for people who like to just you know have a nice entertaining book to read, just anywhere at all. Yeah. I think. Yeah. There are illusions. And, there are illusions in Chasing the Phoenix to events and. And Dancing with Bears, but if you didn't know that there was a novel called Advancing with Bears, you'd think it's just part of the general backstory 
which includes their burning London to the ground and selling the Eiffel Tower to people in Paris. <laughs> yeah, so the uh, burning London to the ground was their uh, original sin. <laughs> and, I'm, and any any reason. country they come to, the question is, is, is will they burn its capital to the ground or exactly. not? I'm not sure if I want uh, them to come to Australia or not. <laughs> so so there's, there's like mixed uh, mixed feelings uh, you know, uh, 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 about them arriving in your nation. Yeah. Well, look, it's been a great pleasure having you on the Cood Street podcast at last, Michael. Thank you very, very much for making the time today. We been really appreciate it. Uh, obviously, uh, Chasing the Phoenix will be in good bookstores on August the 11th. There's a, the launch coming up. And, in, and in wicked bookstores as well. <laughs> in fact, any kind of retailer yeah. that sells books at all. We hope so. <laughs> or, 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 or can be digitally downloaded by purchasing Kindly kind of editions or something. But that'll be August the 11th, and you're saying there's a launch coming up in Bryn Mawr just before then, I think? On the, on, exactly well, on, on the 11th. 11th. I wish we all could be there. But so until why? then, thank you very much. Uh, I've loved the series so far. I'm looking forward to chasing the Phoenix. Gary, you've got your review coming up shortly in the magazine as well, in Locus. The um, September issue? <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, uh, we shall no doubt talk about it again then. But until then, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Gary. This remains, as it always has been, the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>